this series will take up only uh, six classes at 45 minutes each. We could easily spend twice that amount of time just introducing the material that we are looking at. So that has a few implications. First, I will be moving very quickly through the material. Second, I expect to rarely take questions during the class itself. We just don't have enough time. If we do, we'll take questions at the end. Otherwise, though, uh, feel free to ask me questions outside of the class. You can email questions to eric at veritas-truth.com or you can find an email address on the website. And then when I receive those, I'll do my best to answer them or at least point you in the right direction. Third implication, because I'll only be introducing the material, note page five of the outline that I gave you. There, I've given you a small list, a brief list of resources on this subject. Some of those resources I will be highlighting throughout the class. I actually forgot my book bag this morning. I realized that it's in a it's at home, so I was going to show you, but I'll go through the resources uh, at the end, assuming we have time, and I'll also highlight which of those resources have been the, the most helpful for, for me. So that way you can, outside this class, dig as deep as you'd like into the subject. As well, following this series, because this uh, Sunday school is something we're going to begin doing consistently. Following this series, beginning April 8th, we'll have another Sunday school series called Grounded in the Gospel, which will be a long look, probably like a year-ish, at a catechism written by particular Baptists who believed the doctrines that this class will introduce. So it's sort of like a long part two if you will, of this class, if you're interested. So with all that said, let's bow our heads and let me pray. And we'll get started with today's lesson. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to consider what your word has to say to us. We ask that you would help us, not just this morning, but in the weeks to come, to understand all the truth that you have given us to understand. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people who want to accept and embrace the teaching of your word, even when it's difficult, even when it's complicated, even when it doesn't make perfect sense to us. But God, that we would have hearts that want to accept your word, whatever it says, and to embrace and love your word, whatever it says. And thank you, God, for the testimony of so many who have at first rejected your word and then accepted your word and now find those truths that they once found difficult and even untasteful. They have found that those truths are the greatest truths they know. So help us all as we seek to understand your word. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So you have that handout with uh, quite a bit of information. Also tried to put some spaces in there so that you could add your own notes as we went along. The name of this series is The Five Points. 
understanding the doctrines of grace. We could also have called this series the five points of Calvinism. We could have called this series TULIP. We'll get to that today, which is an acronym for these five points. Or we could have called this class the foundation of Reformed Soteriology. Soteriology just means the study of the doctrine of salvation. So this past week, as I was preparing to teach this lesson, I was reminded, thinking back, of how I came to understand these truths that we will be looking at and how unlikely it was that I did. So let me begin this morning by summarizing my pilgrimage toward embracing these biblical truths. John Calvin is a monster. That is the only thing I can remember my dad, who was a pastor, ever saying about John Calvin or Calvinism. And so... Uh, I grew up in a church, and I chose Bible colleges where these five points would not be taught, and in fact, would be argued against. Fast forward to the year 2000, three very significant things happened to me in the year 2000, when I turned 23 years old. Number one... I began my first official ministry as a youth pastor at Sylvan Oaks Christian Church in Citrus Heights. I'm so thankful for that church and so many of the people there. Second, I graduated from college. And third, I married my wife, Kristen. That's the order those things happened. That's not the order of importance. So my first few years of ministry, uh, right over here down the street at Sylvan Oaks Christian Church. So this is 2001 to 2003. Uh, I was not a Calvinist. Uh, In fact, I would argue and did against Calvinism. However, in those three years, I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with what I had been taught. And I was even becoming increasingly uncomfortable with what then, of course, I was teaching specifically about salvation. So this is this is how it would go. Let me give you an example. I I can remember this. I can remember teaching on Ephesians chapter one. Now, if you go to Ephesians chapter one, there's there are words there like predestination. That's not a Calvinistic word. That's, That's just a Bible word. It's just people understand what that word means in different ways. So I would be teaching on Ephesians chapter 1, and I would explain, I can remember doing this, and I would explain that predestination, that, that there was, that was not, that was not God choosing some for salvation while overlooking others. I can remember teaching that's not what predestination was, but rather that predestination was God looking down the tunnel of time and using His foreknowledge to see 
who it was that would choose him. And then he said, me too. So he chose those. That's what predestination was, I would explain. God chose those whom he foreknew were going to choose him. So I would teach that. And and it made very good sense to me. And it agreed with what I had been taught. And then I would go back to my office and feel sick. This is, this, is what, this is what I mean by I felt uncomfortable. So I would teach that and I would believe that and it made sense to me and it agreed with what I had been taught, but I still felt uneasy. A lesson like that, when I would give it, it felt faithful to a text. It felt faithful to a verse, but it, it felt unfaithful to the whole message of Scripture. Probably the best way for me to put it. I think that was just that sort of sicky feeling that that I had. So here's a little poem. Uh, This is not, I didn't write this poem. I've never written a poem. Here's a little poem uh, that was written by a pastor within my theological heritage. Okay, my theological heritage. And, And I believed this, the heart and the thoughts in this poem, I believed this uncomfortably. From 2001 to 2003. So here's the poem written by William Babcock. Know then that every soul is free to choose his life and what he'll be. For this eternal truth is given that God will force no man to heaven. He'll draw, persuade, direct him right. Bless him with wisdom, love and light. In nameless ways be good and kind, but never force the human mind. So that was that was a sort of uh, 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 motto. Uh, We'd hear this phrase often and say this phrase often. God is a and maybe you've heard this. He's a gentleman. God is a gentleman. So the the theme of that poem in those years, I would say I believed uh, I thought that sounded right. Um, I thought that sounded sweet. And it made sense to me, and it certainly agreed with what my professors had taught me, but at the same time, it was making me uncomfortable. The more I would read God's Word, the more uncomfortable I would get. So, in 2004, in 2004, I was reading a a book in my office at that church, and a contributor to that book he, he said something that captured my frustration with the Bible teaching that I was used to. That contributor's name was Mark Driscoll. So I looked him up because he said something that, that no one else around me was saying. And it captured that frustration that I was having. So I looked him up, and I can remember this. I looked him up, and to my horror, he was a Calvinist. Because remember my, my, remember my upbringing. So by God's grace, I pushed through the warning voice of my father, who had died two years before. I pushed through that warning voice of my dad, and I started reading other Calvinists, um, especially R.C. Sproul, John Piper, and Sinclair Ferguson. 
So I started reading those, those three guys. And, and when I, I can remember this. And when I was reading their books, I would close the door to my office and I would close the blinds. Because I felt like I was doing something naughty. I'm not, right? Because my dad's voice. That guy's a monster. But I just, I, I was eating it up. I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. At the same time, uh, Matt Phelan, who's here, but I think he's with the uh, kids. Um, we had just met, and that's a whole other good story. But he introduced me to a pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church named Robert Briggs. Robert Briggs befriended me and was also instrumental in helping me to understand these doctrines of grace. So I have deep gratitude for all of those men today. They were totally instrumental in helping me to understand these doctrines of grace, which have become the bedrock. This is not an overstatement. I don't mean this as as hyperbole. They have become the bedrock of my faith and joy. The absolute bedrock of my faith and joy. So so here's what I mean. And here's the heart of these five points. These doctrines of grace take you behind the scenes of your salvation. They take you behind the scenes of your salvation and biblically answer the question, how did I become a Christian? How did I become a Christian? How did I get saved? And a Calvinist answers that question in a certain way. And it is much more than, though it includes, I believed. I did believe. But there's so much more behind the scenes of I believe. So that's, in a nutshell, why I'm teaching this series. I mean, that's why, that's why I am in this. That's why anybody who knows me knows how excited I am about these truths and how passionate I am about these truths. They're the bedrock for my faith and joy. They are the bedrock of my wife's faith and joy, she will tell you. If they are not already, I pray they become the bedrock of your faith and your joy. Okay, let's move on to the next heading. Here is an overview of the historical background of these Five points of Calvinism. Where did this come from? So let's begin with a brief overview of church history. Very brief, right? Let me summarize 2,000 years of church history for you. It's really presumptuous. Peter said in 2 Peter 2.1, But false prophets who arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Paul said something very similar to that. You'll remember in 2 Timothy 4.3. So Peter and Paul predicted that false teaching was going to make its way into the church. They were right, of course. Their predictions were correct. And historically, when false teaching or false or heresy, has made its way into the church. Historically, the church has responded to false teaching through formal reaffirmation of biblical truth. So a false teaching gets in, maybe it gets more popular, 
And now a lot of people perhaps are believing this false teaching historically, the way the church has dealt with that. And this is still happening even as recently as the as the 19th, the 20th century. Okay, with statements on the inerrancy of Scripture and on biblical manhood and womanhood. So what has happened historically is that Christian leaders will get together and they'll consider what they think is false teaching and go to God's word and consider it in light of God's word. And then they will formally, okay, in writing, they will formally reaffirm truth. No, that's not true. This is true. So historically, a controversy would arise and then orthodox creeds and confessions would be disagreed with and then church leaders would gather to formally address the dispute and typically issue a response in writing which would be a reaffirmation of biblical truth. So for example, this is what happened at the first council of Nicaea in 325. That was in response to a false teaching known as Arianism. This is what happened in the council of Ephesus in 431. That was a response to a heresy known as Pelagianism. This is what happened on a much larger scale through the Protestant Reformation, which began in 1517 following a millennium of corruption in church life and doctrine. This is important. The Reformation, which began in 1517, that was not the beginning of a new religion called Protestantism. But rather, as Protestants, as Protestants, we would say it was a return to early church doctrine. It was a formal reaffirmation of biblical truth. So a German monk named Martin Luther initiated this reformation in Germany, but it quickly spread throughout the entire church so that 150 years later, the church had been reformed throughout Europe, in Germany, under Luther, whose followers would become known as Lutherans, in France and Switzerland, under John Calvin, whose followers would become known as Reformed Believers, and under John Knox in Scotland, whose followers would become known as Presbyterians. There's so much more here. Again, we're just glossing over it. Each of these groups, now these Protestant groups, broken off from the Roman Catholic Church, who have reaffirmed gospel truth, Each of these groups would develop their own confessions of faith, but they all agreed on the gospel. They had things they would disagree over, but they all agreed on the gospel. They all agreed in their protest to the Roman Catholic Church and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. G.I. Packer who's still alive, he wrote uh, an introduction to one of Martin Luther's books called Bondage of the Will. And he said in the introduction this, on other points, the reformers had their differences, but in asserting the helplessness of man in sin and the sovereignty of God in grace, they were entirely at one. In other words, what he is saying is they all agreed on these five points. Because these five points deal with the helplessness of man in his sin and the sovereignty of God in his grace. So all of those reformers, they agreed on these five points. So a couple notable figures. Obviously, one is John Calvin. John Calvin was born in 1509 and died in 1564. He was converted at the age of 21. 
You do the math, you see he was only eight years old when Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation. So he was actually a second generation reformer. But John Calvin would become the man who, through his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which, by the way, the first edition was published when he was 27 years old. <laughs> but he would become the, the one who put the doctrine of the reformers into writing. That's really who, who John Calvin was. He, he, he put the, the doctrine of all of these reformers into writing. And he did that most notably through the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Religion, which he continued to revise for the rest of his life. I think there's five or six editions. Now, note again, this doctrine was not new doctrine. It was a recovery of early church teaching, and it was a rejection of the medieval teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So if you were if you were to really read John Calvin, if you were to read that book, if you were to read his commentaries, if you were to dig in and read John Calvin, you would come to understand why many in some circles unanimously regard him as the greatest biblical expositor of all time. But that's quite a thing to say about somebody. But many today would say that. I haven't read a ton of John Calvin. But when I am reading John Calvin exposit the word of God, it, it's like I'm on a different planet. It feels like I'm on a different planet. It doesn't feel like there's anybody even today who can just, we just are not capable of producing people like that with education like that that can talk like that about God's word. There's others that are like that, but he was significant. So that's John Calvin. Jacobus Arminius, another notable figure. Jacobus Arminius was born in 1560 and died in 1609. He was actually taught and trained under Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza, but he came to reject some key tenets of Protestant doctrine. And so by the early 1600s, in the Dutch Reformed Church, there was theological controversy between the Calvinists and the Arminians. The Calvinists were those who felt Calvin best expressed the meaning of Scripture on salvation. And the Arminians were those who felt that Jacobus Arminius best expressed the meaning of Scripture on salvation. Now, as best I can tell, these groups were not known as Calvinists and Arminians then. Okay, that is just shorthand used today to identify where someone stands in their understanding of salvation. In that day, the Calvinists were known as just Reformed believers, and the Arminians were known as remonstrants, which is another word for protest. So in 1610, this came to a head. In 1610, a year after Arminius had died, the Arminians, or the Remonstrants, they published the five articles of remonstrance. So they're actually the first ones with the five. They published the five articles of remonstrance, which articulated their points of disagreement with the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism, which were the Dutch Reformed Church's 
doctrinal statement. So that controversy went on for several years. That conversation went on for several years. And then finally, in 1618, remember this is what the church has done historically, a large group of church leaders, 84 of them, from all over Europe, from Holland, Germany, Switzerland, England, Scotland, they gathered to formally consider those five articles of remonstrance. This was called the Synod of Dort, which met in Dort from November 13th, 1618 to May 6th, 1619. Talk about a long meeting. Like a six-month meeting. At which end, at the end of that, they unanimously rejected the teachings of Arminius as contrary to the word of God and then issued a response reaffirming their understanding of biblical truth known as the canons of Dort, which we know today as the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism. So the canons of Dort, you see this, they're not a summary of Calvin's teaching. Rather, they are a response to the five points of the Arminians, which the Calvinists believed undermined the truth of the gospel as presented in Scripture. Now, let me pause here before summarizing those five points, which is the next thing we'll do. I would be okay being called a Calvinist, and I am okay being called a Calvinist if... That expresses my agreement with the canons of Dort. If that's what it means, if someone were to call me a Calvinist, that I agree with these five points that we're going to be teaching through, great. That said, I would disagree, respectfully disagree with Calvin on many points, especially his view of baptism, he baptized infants, and his ideas about a state church. And all of our elders here, they would nod their heads to that. And many of our members would as well. That's where we would disagree with Calvin. But on these five points, we would agree. Charles Spurgeon, who was also a Reformed Baptist, who disagreed with Calvin at the same points we would, said, quote, I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. He wrote, It is a nickname, that's true, to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. Now, knowing that history, you might expect that the vast majority of Christian settlers in this country were Calvinists in their doctrine, and you would be totally correct. Episcopalians, Puritans, Pilgrims, Presbyterians, and Baptists were almost exclusively Calvinistic in their doctrine. It wasn't until after the American Revolution and during the Second Great Awakening that the doctrines of grace began to be dismissed and eclipsed by a sort of declaration of independence from the sovereignty of God within the church. But that's another story. So here we are. Here we are today, 2018, in the middle, I hope, of another great awakening awakening as unprecedented, really, unprecedented numbers of evangelical Christians today are growing dissatisfied with they might call shallow, weak, or man-centered Bible teaching and are finding hope 
and joy in these five points. In fact, some of you remember a cover on Time Magazine seven or eight years ago. I think it was in 2009. Ten ideas that are changing the world today. And one of them was new Calvinism. So that's where we are today. And that's where we have been as a church. So let's get to a summary of these five points. Here are the five points. And these are how Michael Horton summarizes them in his book for Calvinism, which I've listed in your recommended resources. I wasn't going to try to redefine these and I wasn't going to just cite the canons of Dort, which are actually five chapters and very lengthy. Um, So I just read a lot of summaries this week and selected one that I thought was was accurate and helpful. So here is a summary of these five points. I'm just going to read these total depravity. That's number one. Our bondage to sin in Adam is complete in its extensiveness, though not in its intensity. In other words, we're not as bad as we can possibly be, but original sin has thoroughly corrupted every aspect of our existence, including the will. And I'm going to compare each of these to the contrary Arminian points. That'll be the next thing that we do. Secondly, unconditional election. Out of his lavish grace, the father chose out of the fallen race, a people from every race to be redeemed through his son and united to his son by his spirit. This determination was made in eternity apart from anything foreseen in the believer. So you see the acrostic tulip here. T-U-L-I-P. The next is limited atonement, but Michael Horton prefers, and I prefer, particular redemption or definite atonement. We'll get to that in a few weeks, but limited is a really bad, I think it's just a, a, a bad word. Limited makes it sound like it's, it's lim- like it's not good. So anyway, here's limited atonement. Christ's death is sufficient for the whole world but secured the redemption of the elect. Irresistible grace, or as he would prefer, effectual grace. The Holy Spirit unites sinners to Christ through the gospel, and faith is the effect, not the cause, of the new birth. And then finally, perseverance of the saints. All of those chosen, redeemed, and regenerated will be given the gift of persevering faith so that not one will be lost. So they follow a logical order. Okay, they follow a logical order. Uh, We're depraved. That's number one. And then the next four are the order in which God saves us. So he unconditionally elects us. He sends Christ to die for our sins. He calls us by his grace through the Holy Spirit And then he enables us to persevere to the end. So TULIP. I don't know where TULIP came from. Haven't been able to to find that. But it's been going around for quite some time. But if you don't like TULIP. Or TULIP is difficult to remember. Maybe bacon would be more helpful. So let me give you bacon. Bad people. That's the B. 
The A is already elected. The C is completely atoned for. The O is overwhelmingly called. And the N is never falling away. So someone who subscribes to those is called a five-strip Baconist. <laughs> right, yeah. that's, that's what we're taking notes on. Okay, so let's move on. So that's just a summary. That's just a summary. Let's move on now to uh, the differences. And, and please remember, we're going to spend f- 45 minutes on each of those in, in weeks to come. So if it's not clicking, don't worry about it. Differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. Here's a good summary, and then we'll look more specifically. Again, I'm going to quote Michael Horton. He said this, This debate, it goes to the heart of the gospel itself. That does not mean that those with whom, that those with whom we differ don't really believe the gospel. We are justified through faith in Christ, not through doctrinal precision. It's very important. However, are our doctrinal assumptions and convictions consistent with our profession of faith? Much of the debate comes down to one basic difference. Talking about Calvinism and Arminianism. He says it comes down to one basic difference, and this sounds right to me. Arminians affirm synergism. We've talked about this before which is working together or cooperation between God's grace and human willing and activity. While Calvinists affirm monergism, which is one working or God's grace as the effectual source of election, redemption, faith and perseverance. So here's the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. And again, I look for a good summary of this. So this is how John Piper summarizes the differences in a six part series called the pursuit of God's glory in salvation. So let's look at each of these and hopefully you'll begin to see the difference on depravity. There's two views, total depravity versus free will. Calvinism. People are so depraved and rebellious that they are unable to trust God without his special work of grace to change their hearts so that all resistance is overcome and they willingly and gladly believe. Well, here's how an Arminian would see it. People are depraved and corrupt, but are able to provide the decisive impulse to trust God with the general divine assistance that he gives to all people by the Holy Spirit, through the gospel. How about election? It is unconditional election versus conditional election. Calvinism. God has chosen unconditionally whose rebellion he will overcome and whom he will bring to faith and salvation. Arminianism. God has chosen to bring to salvation All those whose faith he foresaw, but did not decisively bring about. Let's look at atonement. Particular redemption versus unlimited atonement. Calvinism. In the death of Christ, 
God provided a sufficient atonement for all, but designed that it be effective for the elect, meaning that it purchased for them the new covenant promise that God would successfully bring about in his people the grace of faith and perseverance. On the other side, though, Arminianism, in the death of Christ, God provided a sufficient atonement for all and designed that it become effective by virtue of faith, meaning that the faith itself is not a gift purchased by the cross, but the human means of obtaining the gift of purchased forgiveness. Now, my outline says gin. I changed that on the fly because gin would not make sense here. I think it's supposed to be gift. Grace. We have irresistible grace versus resistible grace. Calvinism. Irresistible grace is God's work in us by which he overcomes our resistance to God and unfailingly brings about the act of saving faith and through that faith infallibly supplies everything we need to live joyfully with God forever. Arminianism, grace is not irresistible, but it is prevenient. It precedes and makes possible saving faith, but we provide the decisive act of will that brings about saving faith through which God supplies everything we need to live joyfully with him forever. One of the reasons I chose John Piper's summaries of the differences here is because I felt that he did it accurately, but he also didn't do it condescendingly or snarky. So I, I appreciate that. And then finally, assurance. We have perseverance of the saints versus potential security. Calvinism. God works infallibly to preserve the saving faith. All who are truly born again so that none is ever lost. If we are truly regenerate, we will never be lost. Arminianism. God works to preserve his people but does not always prevent some who were born again from falling away to destruction. If we are truly regenerate, we may shall be lost. That's a summary of the differences that we're going to look at deeply, as deep as we can, in the weeks to come. So on the next page, I hope this isn't offensive to anybody. This little graphic, I think, captures the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism. The way I was raised was that God and man, when it comes to salvation, are pretty much equals. And by that, I mean that God's doing his part and I'm doing my part. The, the image in my mind would have been a, a canyon that separates me and God, and he's built a bridge halfway. And the bridge that he has built halfway is, the, is my possibility of salvation. And then I, by faith, am to build the bridge the other half and meet him in the middle. I mean, that was, frankly, that was what I was, I was taught growing up. Now, Calvinistic doctrine is very different. 
So some of you think that might be a period after God, that big God, but it's actually the word man, you see. So the difference is, 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 is this e- enormous through Calvinism, right? It is an enormous man-eclipsing view of God. That, that's really what we have. Now that really, so, so the, the image, right, the canyon, is there's a bridge, and God has built the bridge, and he's, he's, he built the bridge all the way across. And then he goes, and he finds me, and he picks me up, and he puts me on the bridge, and then he holds my hand, and he walks me across the bridge, sometimes kicking me in the rear. So that's Calvinism. It's very different. It's a very different image. And that is what, looking back, I was uncomfortable with. So as I was reading the Bible, it felt more to me like, God, all caps, bold, you know, 72 point font. And it felt like, man, man. I mean, valuable. Don't get me wrong. We'll talk about this this morning. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Valuable, um, loved by God, image bearers of God. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the way of salvation, this is, as Jonah 2, 9 says, salvation belongs to the Lord, not, not to both of us, or as Charles Spurgeon titled his book, it is all of grace. So we will look to, in weeks to come, See if these points are true by looking at God's word. So whatever conceptions you have at this point, whatever resistance you have at this point, my encouragement to you would be to keep coming. If you're not here, they're recorded. Listen and look at the verses, look at scripture, and let's look together to see whether or not these five points are true, not according to John Calvin or this theologian or that theologian, but mainly according to the word of God. So if you hear those things and you think, oh, yeah, so what's the point of evangelism? And what is the point of praying? And uh, God, this just sounds like the frozen chosen. And God doesn't sound loving anymore. And God can't be loving anymore. And what is even the point of my obedience Every one of those things I just said, I felt deeply and, and was a part of my resistance to these truths. But again, let's go to God's word and reason together. We'll spend 45 minutes on each one of those, though we will probably take them out of order. So I'm thinking we'll go T-I-L-U-P, which is Tylup or Tilip. Doesn't doesn't have the same ring, but I think it'll be more helpful for us. Okay, last thing. There are some recommended resources on that last page of your outline. So I've listed some books there, a teaching series there. Uh, there is a film you can find online. Nick Weissel uh, brought it to my attention. It's really good, called The Calvinist. And as well, there are some a couple historical documents that I listed there, which are easy to find online. So go back up to the books. Uh, let me tell you the books that uh, I was reading in my office with the door closed and the, the, the blinds closed, you know, and, and every time, you know, I heard a noise was like 
chucking them in the corner and grabbing my NIV. Or these other, these are, or, you know, or postmodern youth ministry and oh, reading about putting candles out in our youth service because that's what God wants. This is weird stuff. It doesn't make any sense to me now. But so here are the books that I was reading. Um, and I think this is the order that I actually read them. So the first one was a book by R.C. Sproul called What is Reformed Theology? So I discovered this week, I don't even think we carry that book, but maybe we should. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, but that was the very first book I was reading. Um, uh, no one, I don't think anyone's better this last uh, century at, at putting difficult doctrine into, into layman language, just in, into language that the common person can understand who maybe doesn't have a, a seminary degree, and that was me. Uh, and I found him very helpful, very accessible. So R.C. Sproul, What is Reformed Theology? Um, I'll bring it next week, and you'll see. It's just... It's, it's stained, right, and it's kind of tattered, and like every line is highlight. highlight. You ever read a book, and you, you highlight so much, the priest, and you're like, I don't know why I'm highlighting this. <laughs> this is not helpful, because I like to go back and look at what I highlighted, but I'm, I'm going to be reading the whole book. Uh, what is Reformed Theology? A second book was called The Christian Life by Sinclair Ferguson, which is like an introduction to systematic theology. Um, that, was, that was so, so helpful for me. Yeah, even to date, he's one of my favorite authors, The Christian Life by uh, Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, I think the next book I read was Desiring God by John Piper. Uh, John Piper is, is probably my favorite pastor to listen to. Um, uh, I prefer listening to him, to reading him, but I also love reading him. This book, Desiring God, uh, was very helpful uh, because even as I was... Okay, I've got to wrap this up. As I was reading these books about Reformed theology and these five points, and I was, I was becoming persuaded, like in my head, I was becoming persuaded that this is, in fact, what the Bible teaches. My, uh, my heart was, wasn't caught up yet, and I, 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 was, I was sort of like, I was accepting it, but not embracing it. It was almost like I didn't like the things that I couldn't deny, deny were true. Well, desiring God just took care of all that. Because here he holds to this doctrine, and no one, I mean, no one loves that's kind of a silly thing to say, but no one loves God more than John Piper. No one, n- no one delights in God more than John Piper. No one has a heart for prayer more than John Piper. Heart for evangelism more than I, I just. So, and he's a, he's a Calvinist, and it's re- he, so he goes through that book and he really explains how how his understanding of these truths is the foundation and the bedrock for for everything else. So that's a great book. And then finally, a book by Douglas Wilson called Hard Words, Easy Chairs. That is a very quick, very easy read. It's a fictional story about a young man, and I was that young man, who's wrestling with these truths, who meets a reformed pastor and has a conversation with him where he brings up and throws all of his curveballs and asks all of his questions, and the pastor just graciously responds. Hard words, but but easy chairs. So that's a, that's a great book. If you as we get into this are wrestling with that, or maybe you are wrestling with it, and you have other things that you've heard that are sort of nagging and, and gnawing at you, that might be a very helpful book, as well as the rest of those books. Um, some of those we do carry in our library. All of them you can find on Amazon. So that concludes our introduction to the five points. Next week we'll get into the T. Total depravity. Let me close our class in prayer.
Father in heaven, thank you for the time we've had to introduce this uh, material. Uh, We thank you for those men and women who have gone before us and have been uh, champions of your word and of your truth and have left us with a rich heritage. Help us to examine your word in weeks to come, to, to mine your scripture, to find the truth of the gospel. Help us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.